For uh, those of you who are visiting this morning, um, Pastor Joshua will be, I think, back Luke in, in, in Luke next week, unless, uh, unless something else strikes him. No, I think it is, it is Luke next week. Um, um, it is neat that in God's providence, we've been going through the temptation of Christ, because that has to do with this passage this morning. Uh, for those of us who've, uh, uh, if you've been with us for a while, you, you know that occasionally I get a chance to go through James, and maybe I'll make it through the... The, the, the whole book at some time, but we'll see. But we're going to go back to James 4. Uh, you'll notice that the verses we're going to focus on are verses 6 through, through, through 10. This is the second half of a longer paragraph, but I will, I will review some. So I think that, that uh, you'll all feel ca- caught up to speed. Um, whether in a, if you can imagine for a minute, getting into a boxing ring, um, imagine that. Or maybe going on to a battlefield, which is easier, I think, for us to, to imagine as we see those pictures. The wise um, boxer or the wise soldier is going to be concerned whether they have enough strength or enough skill to defeat their enemy. Right? If I were to go into a boxing ring, I'd probably sum up my opponent quickly. And uh, if they have two legs, I'd probably be saying it's time to leave. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. Um, we, you're going to sum up whether you have the strength and the skills to defeat your opponent. The book of James warns against a battle that you cannot win. James 4, 6 says, and my brother Huey read this, God opposes the proud. God is hostile toward the proud. He resists them. You will not win a life lived your way. But there's hope. Because that's not all that there is here in this passage. James says that God gives grace to the humble. Resisting God is futile. It's going to end in destruction. But the humble have God's favor. The humble have God's favor. This morning... God wants you to value humility. He wants you to discern whether you are humble. And if you aren't humble, if you look at the description we're going to see of humility and how you have humility, he wants you to humbly pursue humility, and he's going to tell you how to do so. In just four verses, in between verses uh, 7 through 10, God gives Ten commands in those four verses. Uh, The command words are submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep, turn, and humble. So there's ten commands in those four verses. We're going to organize them because James wants us to, and I'll show you that as, as we go as four actions. The book of James is... Uh, likely the first book written in, in the New Testament, the second portion of your Bible written after uh, Christ ascended to heaven. It's most likely the first book written in the New Testament. It's a book written, a letter written by Jesus' half-brother James. So this is a son of Joseph and Mary. This letter was written 10 years after the ascension of Jesus to his heavenly throne. It was a a circulating letter that was going around Jewish churches that were scattered in Gentile cities around the uh, Roman Empire. But there's very little evidence in in James that that, that there was also uh, Gentile uh, 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 believers at this time. You could even, perhaps, these these churches were founded by some of those who were at Pentecost and who heard uh, the good news about Jesus Christ preached in, in their own languages. And they went back to their cities and they told about Jesus, maybe. The, we know that these that these were that these were believers that James was writing to. They confessed that Jesus was their Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, became man, that he's the Son of David who suffered in the place of sinners so that we can be forgiven and made right with God. And that's still the gospel that we hold to. Most of James' Jewish audience had grown up uh, hearing and valuing God's word. They knew what God promised. They knew what God required. But as the book of James shows, as James writes to these churches, he has has some concerns. They weren't living in a way that was consistent with their confession of Jesus as king. 
And so I'm just going to read a couple verses that show some of James' concern. Because as you heard Huey read, there's some tough language there. You adulterers, sinners, double-minded. Like, whoa, it kind of ramps up. And if you're reading along, James, you, you can see the, the concern builds. So like James 1.22 in the first chapter, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He was worried that they were deceiving themselves. In James 1.26 um, James, James writes, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There was a danger that some of them had a religion that may have been worthless. They deceived themselves. Or in James 2 verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, it's good that you believe in Jesus, but if that's not demonstrating itself in a life of obedience, is that real saving faith? James wants to get them thinking, or they, it looks like they proud, they prided themselves, they boasted in, how about we just get the right word there, uh, in maybe being wise. They considered themselves wise. In James 3, 13, it says, who is wise and understanding among you? So if you think you're wise, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace You're like that doesn't sound very much like like the beginning of chapter four and we'll get to that so they thought of themselves as wise but they're but they weren't living wise they weren't making peace they weren't producing a harvest of righteousness or at least as the general climate of the churches he's writing to he had a lot of concerns they viewed themselves as wise but james Bluntly says their wisdom was earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And as you read, you're kind of like, okay, was he writing to Christians here? He, he wants them to, 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 to take stock. He wants them to examine their faith. He wants them to see if they really are in Christ Jesus, although he doesn't use that language here. Let's uh, review the beginning of, 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 of chapter 4. and James 4, 1 through 6. James uses um, the topic of conflicts to, share, to show that they, that they had a worship problem. And really, conflict shows that in our lives. When we have conflicts, most often, it shows that we have a worship problem. So James asks in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So where does all this fighting and quarreling come from? And James doesn't look at the external causes. He doesn't say, well, you're, you know, you've got a really tough boss, or that baby really does cry a lot, or you know, when your car breaks down, of course you're going to get angry, or when you drop your cell phones and the screen shatters. And, you know, James doesn't look at those external causes, those, those, those situations, Instead, he answers in verse 1, the second half, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And passions are the desires for what brings us pleasure. And whether the object of that desire is a good one that God says we can't have or a bad one that he commands us not to have, our passion becomes idolatrous when we sin to get it or when we sin when we don't get it. And that is what is going on here in these conflicts. So James tries to slap his audience and us out of our slumber a little bit by showing how serious the sin is. He says, you adulterous people in verse 4, right? And as soon as someone calls you an adulterer, you're like, whoa, like what's going on here? You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's that's sobering language, an enemy of God. The result isn't uh, just war on earth here when we have worship problems, but even more seriously, war with heaven. When our passions, our desire for, for pleasure, lead us to worship God's creation instead of our creator, we commit spiritual adultery and we give the love that is due him to getting our own way to ourselves. God deserves our heart, but we, we, we prostitute ourselves for what will not satisfy. When pleasure dominates our heart, we've chosen war with God. When pleasure dominates our heart, we're choosing war with God. 
See, God created us to worship him, and that was a good design, and it's what's best for us. Verse 5 goes so far as to say this is beautiful, that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. He's given you your heart, your capacity to worship, and he yearns jealously for that because it's due him, it belongs to him, but it's also your greatest good. God desires the heart he gave you to be directed to him. So to be human as intended by God is that your passion is for him and your passion is for his glory, not to spend and to waste your passion on yourself. So what change does God require when we realize we're, we're, we're spending our passions on ourselves rather than pursuing him? James 4, 6 says, but God gives more grace. There is hope. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So God's answer is to turn from pride to humility. The humble are those who receive grace from God. Now, we could ask more about how someone becomes humble. That also requires God's grace. No one is going to be humble before God unless God is graciously working in their heart. But here he says, God gives grace to the humble. The humble receive grace from God. Now, God's grace towards those who have severely offended him, right? Who have made themselves friends with this anti-God world system. That have been spiritual adulterers. This grace that he uh, gives to those offended, it is shocking. And perhaps as we read that, it's tempting to kind of Breathe a giant sigh of of relief almost. He gives grace to the humble. Phew. But we do have to ask ourselves, is that me? Am I humble? Am I the recipient of this grace from God? See, and this is the problem with pride. The very nature of pride is to think of ourselves as better than we are. Right? We're probably all much more handsome than we really are. Right? We like to think of ourselves. We like to give our attention to ourselves. We like to stare in the mirror at ourselves. And even if we say condemning things about ourselves, we still, the focus is us. That pride is so deeply bound in us. And so when we ask, answer that question, am I humble, we need help. And so to help us answer this question of whether we're humble of whether we are those who are receiving grace from God, James doesn't give you a doctrinal test. He doesn't say, do you believe that Jesus was truly born of a virgin, or that Jesus is God the Son, or that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to take the punishment of your sins? He doesn't give you any doctrinal test to ask you if you're humble. Because I think that that sometimes we can answer, well, am I humble? Well, I believe in Jesus. In fact, James bypasses this kind, this, this kind of answer and that kind of answer that our mind can give and he goes after your heart. He goes after your will and your emotions. He goes after your decisions and your desires. So by God's grace, I hope that the purpose of this sermon is the purpose of this passage, that you will value humility as something you must have. Like, I need to be humble. I, I, I have to be humble. Okay? So that's that you will value humility as something you must have, but also that you examine whether humility is something you do have. So by God's grace, you'll see that humility is something that, that I need to have. You examine whether you do have it. But this, all, this passage will also help you say, now I know how to cultivate it. Because there are 10 10 commands here in this passage, and we're going to kind of group them together as four actions. So by God's grace, you'll value humility, you'll examine whether I am humble, and then you'll know how to cultivate that humility. So um, we're going to look first at what the value of uh, humility is, and some of you have alerted us to the fact that that is also the third point, which is the value of humility. So we're going to see that Humility is valuable, and God wants to motivate you to pursue humility. And so that's what he does in verse 6. It says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
So we've already seen in this context here that the proud are those who fight for what they want. The proud have an inflated view of themselves. The proud think that they deserve to have their way, to have their desires satisfied. That's so easy to do. But it says that God opposes the proud. The proud break God's laws to get what they want. They commit spiritual adultery, as we already saw. They align with the world's way of life. They seek to push God off his throne. They want a God who is a genie in a bottle, granting an infinite number of wishes, right? That's, this, that's, that's what pride is. God exists for me to give me what I want. God and the proud are, are incompatible. As God says, he will not give his glory to another. He is opposed to the proud. The humble are those to whom God gives grace. So God's grace, it's his goodwill, it's his favor, it's his kindness to those who deserve judgment. To be humble is to bring oneself low. It's to have an accurate view of yourself, both as a creature first, right? That, that God is tremendously infinite, and I am very, very small, and he is the one upon whom my very being depends. And I'm alive now because he, he wills it to be so. So not just that I'm a creature, but then I'm also a sinful creature. God's grace is directed towards the humble, the lowly, those who understand that they only deserve judgment in themselves. Now the humble don't interpret God's grace as evidence of what they deserve but of how beautiful God is, right? So, so that as we get to enjoy this time together here this morning and as we enjoy lunch or as we get into our car, we don't be like, wow, I really deserve all this. No, it's just say, oh, what a kind God. So this morning, and you are either being opposed by God or given grace by him. You're either opposed by God or you're receiving grace from him. So the stakes of humility are, are high. We must know whether we have humility and how to humble ourselves. And so now we're going to look and we're, we're, we are going to group these, these Ten Commands here as actions. So the first action of, of humility is humility sub, submits. Excuse me. Humility submits. James 4, 7 Starts us off. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. James calls on the, uh, on, on the believers to willingly submit themselves to God's righteous rule. The word submit has the idea of putting oneself in your proper place. It has an emphasis on, on offering your will to do the desires of another. There you are, God. I'm going to submit to you. Your will is what I'm going to do. To submit yourself means to be the king's obedient subjects. Sign me up. I want to serve that king. I'm going to obey that king. His rule is right, and I'm going to do what he says. In Scripture, uh, we know it makes clear that God's enemies are going to be forced ultimately, to submit to him. Scripture says in, in the book of Philippians, every knee will be forced to bow and every tongue made to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so, so every will is somehow going to be, be subjugated to God, but that's not willing, that's, that's forced. Here James speaks of our willing submission to God as God. The submission that God requires is not only out of fear of consequences, Yes, it is terrifying to think of God opposing us, right? But this command to submit follows good news. It says get, that God gives grace to the humble at the end of verse 6. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, right? So that we can willingly submit ourselves to God because he gives grace to the humble. So do we want grace from God? Do we want him to treat us better than we deserve? Do we want his favor? Therefore, submit to God, because that is the kind of God we have the privilege of submitting to. His favor is upon the humble, and his grace is toward the submissive. If 
we would receive grace from God, we must turn from our self-will. We must turn from our self-will and say, your kingdom come, your will be done. We must submit to God's sovereign plan and to his righteous commands. Excuse me. See, submission is, is more than giving up and, and tapping out. It's like, okay, God, you can have your way. It's not begrudgingly putting on the jersey of another team while well, I lost a bet, so I got to put on this jersey. To submit, to, to, to order yourself under God is to willingly and, and joyfully use our resources to accomplish the will of our king for his glory. It's to be all in. It's to refuse to look back, to, 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 to be done with that old life. It's to repent of the years lost, fighting to achieve the kingdom of me and say, I'm done with the kingdom of me. I'm all in for God's kingdom and for God's glory. So submission is, is doing life God's way, and you're not going to do life God's way until you believe he's good and that his commands are good. Submission is fulfilling your purpose as declared by him, your creator. It's wonderful. It's, it's loving being your creator's creature. It's loving being your father's child. It's loving being your king's loyal subject. It's loving being your master's slave. And to look at all that and say, I am so blessed. I'm so blessed. That is what it means to submit ourselves before God. So that is the first action that humility takes. Humility submits. And the second is, and we'll see this in the second half of verse 7, beginning of verse 8, is that humility come, 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 commits, excuse me, uh, uh, humility commits. If you're visiting, you're noticing that I do stutter some. Um, so, and I thought about this, this uh, and, 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 and whether committing is the right word, it is a good one. Maybe if I had to do it again, I would change it to, 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 to be, to be leaving. There's this attitude here of being all in, of, of being loyal, of staying the course. That's where I said to be committed. The end of verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And the beginning of verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And you can see why I group these two together because really that's what James wants. He wants them to inform one another. These, these are parallel statements. They're, they're meant to be taken together. And they inform one another. And, and, and together, they, they help us understand more about what it means uh, to, 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 to submit. To, to resist the devil is to oppose him. Now, that doesn't mean to get in a shouting match with him. To resist him is to do what Jesus did, as Pastor Josh has been, been preaching on, uh, to do what Jesus did when Jesus was tempted by Satan in, in the wilderness. We resist Satan by exposing his lies with the truth of God's word. We fail to resist him by doing what Adam and Eve did in the garden. In the garden, Adam and Eve accepted Satan's counsel. They believed Satan's lies, and they doubted the goodness of God. That is what it means to not resist Satan. We listen to his counsel, we believe his lies, and we doubt God's goodness. Contrary, Jesus resisted Satan's deceit, and he trusted in the goodness of God. At the core of resisting Satan is the commitment to believe what God says about himself. To believe what God says about himself. Now, James promises... Um, in the second half, uh, second half of verse 7, resist the devil and he will, flee he will flee from you. Ultimately, it may not be automatically, but ultimately, Satan flees from the one who resists him. He will go where there's easier wills to, to corrupt. He will look for someone who will doubt what God has said. But resisting Satan is only one half of the commitment that humility has. It's not enough to expose Satan's lies. We must also embrace truth. 
particularly the truth of God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus. Particularly the truth of God's goodness to us in Christ Jesus. See, the humble receive from the one who offers. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I don't know if there's many phrases sweeter in Scripture. Okay, there's a lot of awesome phrases, but this is a good one. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The humble do not stay away from God. The proud stay away from God. And whatever your reasons, if you are staying away from God, it is because of pride. The humble do not stay away from God. Staying away from God is pride and, 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 dis, and disbelief. Staying away from God is an unwillingness to take Jesus at his word. See, Jesus invites sinners to come to himself. And if you this morning know that you are a sinner, Jesus invites you to come to him. John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus has life for you. Jesus has forgiveness for you. Jesus can give you this new life of loving and obeying God, God forever. It is not humility to stay away from Jesus. It is only pride. The humble who receive grace from the Lord are those who come to Jesus. So just think about that. This past week, have you been coming to Jesus? If not, it's not because of... it. If not, it's just because of pride. It might look like, oh, I'm embarrassed about my sin or I'm doubting his promises. It's just pride. I, th- I think I can say that. It's just pride, I, th- I think. Okay, so our posture, so the way that we come to Jesus is one of, of, of reverence, right? We are drawing near to God. We don't go flippantly. We don't go proudly like well he's lucky for me to come no it's reverence but it's also expectancy we must believe that god will respond to our drawing near that he will have pity like the father who runs to greet his prodigal son we must believe that he is that he is the god who he revealed himself to be to moses so long ago in exodus 34 6 to 7 Moses wants to see God, and this is how God makes himself known. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the kind of God that we go to. This is the kind of God that we draw near. Only the proud stay away when the Father beckons. Maybe they stay away because they don't think that they need him, right? So I'm, I'm doing fine. I can pretty much make it through this, this day. I'm fine. Or maybe they stay away because they doubt that he's willing to receive him. But that's, that's, that's not believing him. That's pride too. So what version of God do, do, do you believe? Do you believe Satan's character assassination of God, that God is not good, that his commands aren't good, that his plan isn't wise, that his motives are selfish, is that what's keeping you from God? Or do you believe the God of the gospel, that God is good and loving and gracious and a God who invites you to come to him through his son? Are you committed to the God of the gospel so much so that you draw near in faith and that you resist Satan's lies? That is what humility does. Humility submits to God. Humility commits to God. And the third action that that humility has here is humility repents. Humility repents. If you're like, I don't know what that word means, you're using a word to describe other words, Uh, Turning, he turns from sin. Humility turns from sin. Humility says, I am done with sin. Humility gets away from sin. Listen to what, uh, uh, how uh, verse 8 continues. So as we draw near to God and he draws near to us, we become aware of how unfit we are for his presence. So verse 8, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
So I, I, I love it. It's so inviting. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Now get rid of that sin, you sinners. Both the words cleanse and purify were used of worship at, at the temple. God instu- uh, he instituted rituals for cleansing and purity. And these, and these rituals for, for, for cleansing, purity, it emphasized that God's holy, his holiness it emphasized that he's morally separate from a sin-stained world. And so these rituals of cleansing, of purification, they were physical reminders that God had spiritual requirements for those who entered his presence. If you wanted to go to the temple to worship or if the priest was serving in the temple, they, there, there was washing, there was sacrifices, there was various rules, um, there was cleansings. But these, these, these rituals and these cleansings, they pointed worshipers to their need for God's grace. I don't belong here because he's so holy. So it's so wonderful how God is is urging us to come near him. And he's saying that he will come near you, but yeah, our sin is still not appropriate. We can't, we have to get rid of that sin. We have to be willing to be done with it. Now, today, God does not want you to go through a ritual before drawing near to him. Okay, there's no special cleansing you, you, you have to do or fasting or these things to do to make yourself. We can't make ourselves more acceptable to God. You cannot make yourself more acceptable to God. You can't earn your welcome into God's presence. No amount of washing up is going to do that. No amount of getting rid of sins is going to do that. Forgiveness of sins is only found in Christ Jesus. It is only found in believing through faith, trusting in the work that he did on the cross so that he paid for the punishment of our sins so that we can be forgiven. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of, of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or 1 Corinthians 6.11 describes the cleansing that the Lord Jesus brings. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified, you were declared right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you are here today and you are aware of the filthiness of your sin, there is cleansing for you in Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven, you can come to him and be made right with him. You can be welcomed into his presence because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our job is not to cleanse ourselves to earn a welcome. Um, a, a Christ ushers us into his father's throne room where we have been adopted as his children. Listen to Hebrews 9, 24 to 26. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says that how Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, so not into a physical temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Jesus is in heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And then at the end of 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' sacrifice of himself has allowed us to go into his presence. We can draw near to God where he draws near to us. We are welcome to draw near because of the work of Christ. Now, as we draw near, totally trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, We must not come holding behind our back the stuff we're trying to hide from God, right? We can't hold idols behind our back, the sins we're not ready to get rid of. Our our, our back pockets can't be stuffed with secret sins. We must come repentant. We must come cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. We don't want to bring anything inappropriate into God's presence, Right? We don't want to love sin that he hates. We don't want to cling to sin that Christ died for. Now, we, we, we already uh, reviewed this morning. We heard the language of verse 4 where he, James called them, you adulterous people. He, it was a rebuke to his audience. And now in verse 8, James rebukes them as sinners. Sinners in general was a word that they would use for people that they knew weren't right with God. But he calls them sinners to, to probably to help some of them think maybe I'm not right with God, but also to just shake them up. They're not living obediently. Sinners are those who have a habitual disregard for God's commands. 
You know, they have an ongoing pattern of knowing what God says and choosing to do something else. Sinners have a reputation of disobedience. Now, the, the religious Jews of Jesus' day, of James' day, distance themselves from sinners. Uh, we're not going to eat with the sinners. They are clearly doing what is wrong. We like to keep our sin on the inside kind of nice and clean. This is confrontational language of James. You're not as healthy as you think. You are like the sinners out there. The command to purify your hearts, it, it draws attention to our hearts, the, the center of our will, the center of our affections, our motives, our decisions. And James calls them, talking about their hearts, he calls them double-minded. He had used that, that term way back in chapter 1, describe those who are, who are vacillating between doing life their way and doing life God's way. And which way am I going to choose? There's the broad way and the narrow way. I'm just going to stay here a while. I'm just going to, I'll maybe go down a little bit, but it sure looks good over there. It's double-minded. They can't decide which way is the best. They try to keep one foot in the world and one in, in God's kingdom. James' call is to purify your hearts. Repent of serving two masters. Be single in your devotion. Fix your eyes on Christ as Lord and please him only. Be all in. You can kind of imagine a, a day on your calendar, and what are you going to do that day? Are you going to serve the Lord? Or is it uh, serve the Lord, serve self, serve the Lord, serve self, serve the Lord, serve self? Like, that's double-minded. Brothers and sisters, is there sin that you are clinging on to, that you are unwilling to give up? Or maybe a sin that you have stopped taking seriously. Maybe at one time you were battling it, but you just have kind of like given up. His command here is, it's stern. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's, that's what humility does. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be done with this. I'm, I'm, I'm going to invite counsel. I'm going to get help. I'm going to meditate on God's word. I'm going to cleanse my hands. I'm going to get rid of this, not, not so that I can get into God's presence, but because I love God's presence. Or maybe is there a way in which you are unwilling to follow Jesus Christ as Lord? Maybe a command that he's given that you won't obey. You're afraid of the cost. Or maybe you're trying to kind of keep worship going of both God and money. Trying to keep worship going of God and approval. Of God and, and pleasure. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. One God only. The humble listen to God's command to love him with all of their hearts and souls and minds. That is what humility does. Humility submits Humility commits, humility repents, and humility sorrows. Humility sorrows, and we see that in verse 9. He throws in four commands on this one. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. James calls for an emotional response to our sin. So as we contemplate the, the, the dirtiness of our hands, the, the sins we haven't repented of, as, as, as we look at the unfaithfulness of our hearts and we see how divided we are, as we draw near to God and we expose that he's so good and, and our sin is so dark, the command is to be wretched and mourn and weep. Now this isn't saying, now look really wretched, right? Like, like come on, try a little bit. Just, 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 just if, if you could just get your face to look really sad. It's, it's, he's not pro promoting an external show of remorse. We're not, we're not trying to convince anyone that we look a certain way. This isn't about, well, do I look humble? In fact, Jesus warns against trying to look a certain way. Matthew 6, 16 says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sinful. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, because people are looking. 
Humility is not about sounding humble. This morning isn't about externals. I mean, not this morning, this morning with the you. This morning is also not self-pity. This you know, self-pity is anger at yourself for failing to reach your own high standards, right? This, this morning is not self-pity. We're not to be the objects of our remorse, in a sense, but the subject of them. God, sin is not about letting ourselves down. Oh, I'm so wicked, I did it again. Our sin is our, against our creator. The father of lights, the giver of every good thing. We weep and we mourn because we have distrusted him, because we have rejected him, because we have fashioned idols with the gold that he gives us, because we didn't believe that he was worthy of glorifying and enjoying. So when we realize that the fence is against God, now whether that offense was before salvation when we were facing judgment, or after salvation, when we realize how good the Father's been to us in Christ Jesus, we should mourn. Our emotions ought to change. It is including feeling. Our laughter and joy ought to be driven away by mourning and gloom. We shouldn't flippantly be able to say, well, I had, I had a little mourning. Let's get back on, on, on the Netflix binge or scroll Instagram some more. Our hearts should feel that. Our hearts should be weighed down. It's okay to feel sad. It's commanded to feel sad. God-centered mourning is good. It's not comfortable, as Pastor Joshua was talking about this morning, but it's good. Realizing we are wretched, which is, which is a harsh word, right? This mourning and weeping, this feeling sad, this gloom, are the appropriate responses to realizing our sin and its consequences, and whether that is you this morning who realizes, I am not saved and I am facing judgment, mourn and be wretched and weep and run to Christ, or whether it's you who are remembering that Christ faced that judgment for you, and you're looking back, and then you still run to Christ. Whether you have re realized that you are currently in a position of offending the just God who's going to judge you, or you've displeased your father who gave his own son because he loves you. For three hours, the sky was darkened as God turned his face away from his son. So surely we can let our, our joy be turned to gloom when we contemplate our sin. Now, there is a danger here maybe not in what James says, but of what we might do with that, that we think we need to prove to God our sorrow by changing how we look. So James isn't demanding penance, right? He's not trying to get you to pay for your sin. He's not saying, okay, so now starts the seven days of no smiling, uh, no life enjoyment for the next seven days, or whatever. The point is not to see if, like, can I, can I get a tear to roll down? On, and, and I don't know if, you, if you've ever been there. You know, you're like really sad and, and you are thinking about your sin and all of a sudden you like, you like, you really feel it. You're like, oh, I'm really feeling it. And you're like almost like pat yourself on the back. Um, and that's because that's our pride, right? We're not trying to prove to God we're repentant. We're not trying to pay for our sins by, drum, by drumming up emotional pain. But God did make you. And he knows what's spiritually healthy, and he knows what's spiritually dangerous. Right? To be blessed by God is to wail and weep and mourn when we see the muck of our sin and the adultery of our hearts. That's exactly what Jesus says in Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Right? God approves of those who weep over their sin. To ignore your sin... And maybe you're like, okay, that was getting a little uncomfortable there. I'm going to warm myself up in my robes of self-righteousness. I'm going to deaden my conscience, like you're getting a little too close here. So I'm going to, to go accomplish some great things, or I'm going to watch some entertainment. That's, that's to be cursed. Listen to it. Luke 6.25 says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Right? If that's the way we're going to go through life, I'm going to insulate myself from any emotional pain about my sin. Jesus says that that's cursed. 
you can see where James got his language from, right? From his half-brother, Jesus. The seriousness of sin against your kind and gracious God, it ought to make us sad. Listen to Joel 2, 12, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Show emotional, have emotional pain, but just don't make a show of it. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God is so kind. He wants you to go to him mourning. So we've... And I hope that these four words here kind of summarize these, 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 these verses. Humility submits, humility commits, humility repents, and humility sorrows. And I hope that those four words help you ask, am I humble? Now, let's go at the verse 10 and there, and this is another command too, but we're going to think about this as the value of humility continued because that's what he's doing here. He wants to encourage you. Yeah, he's calling you to humble. The command is there. Humble yourself, but he wants to motivate you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So those, the, the actions of humility that we're talking about, that's shocking to this world, Right? Like, like, you're telling me to sorrow? You're, you're telling me to, to run away from my sins, to submit to someone? I hate all of that, right? The actions of humility are shocking to this world. But God wants you to know that rejecting the world system is worth it. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's incredible. If you, if you have this humility, verses 7 through 9, God, your creator and your judge will exalt you. He will lift you up. You go low and he lifts you up. Your rejection of this world system of, of minimizing and forgetting sin, it will be vindicated in the court of heaven. You will be revealed as one who humbled himself and you will be exalted. It will be clear that you chose the way that the world rejected. You chose the right way. This, 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 this humbling yourself is before the Lord. It's not before men. It's not for a show. It's not like I'm going to try to get into the, the, the humility mood to kind of do some method acting of a humility. It's before the Lord. It's in his sight. And it's in his presence with a view to his evaluation. Those who humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. What does that mean? It means not rejected as rebels, but celebrated as sons. It means not condemned for disobedience, but rewarded for spirit-empowered obedience. It means that we get to hear the son say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what it means to be exalted. Our temporary tears will be turned to eternal smiles. Our greatest desire, the Christian's greatest desire of glorifying God and enjoying him forever will be forever granted. That's what is to be exalted, really to get what you long for most for eternity. The ultimate exaltation is this privilege of being transformed into the image of Christ. To, to eternally shed the futility of sin. To forever enjoy God's presence. To forever work for God's glory. To, ever, to offer eternal thanksgiving, to be the eternal recipients of God's rewards, to glorify God, to enjoy him forever. What sweeter exaltation than to be part of the host that gets to see his face, that gets to be at home in heaven, that gets to be welcomed by the Son into your Father's presence. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Jesus often talked about the connection between humility and exaltation. Jesus said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But he also said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. So which are you today? Are you the humbled, awaiting exaltation? Or 
you those who've exalted themselves, ignoring dirty hands and kind of impure hearts who will, who will be humbled. There will be nothing more humbling in the day of the Lord, in his presence, to assume that you were humble, only to find out, I never knew you. So, will God the Father exalt you on the last day as one who is humble? Or will you be the proud brought low? God is kind. James is kind. He wants you to be able to answer the question with confidence. That you know you're going to be exalted because you have humbled yourself. Again, this is only because of God's grace working in our hearts, right? But you've humbled yourself. So are you submissive to God, ordering your life under his commands and will? Are you committed to God, drawing near to God, resisting Satan, believing that God is good and for you? Are you repenting before God, cleansing hands and purifying your hearts? Are you sorrowing over sin? Look at those four actions. Surely this is worth some time reflecting on in this upcoming week. The humble receive God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving your word, and you are so wise, and you are so good with it. And you know exactly what we need to hear. Father, some of a James language as inspired by you through your spirit, it is harsh, it is stern, but there's also so much hope here. Thank you, Father, for being a God who draws near to those who draws, draw near to you. Thank you for being a forgiving God. Thank you for showing us the necessity of being humble. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us in this upcoming week to examine ourselves, whether we are being humble, to repent where we aren't, Lord, we pray, Father, for those here uh, who look at their lives and it's just, it, it is entrenched pride, Lord, where they have not yet submitted to you as Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would work today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.